Okay, so I talked about Omicoda last time, and now I'm talking about Ascomycota. So this is the second one of the group of funguses that I want to talk about. So the big difference now, remember I gave you a, a, a very good counsel when I asked you, if you really want to learn these things and these pathogens, I encourage you to get even just a simple compound microscope uh, or a dissecting microscope, something you can get on Amazon for 100 bucks or whatever. Uh, very uh, high school level, early, you know, first, second year of college level microscope. They're available just about anywhere. And when you get those microscopes, you can uh, begin to look at these things under a microscope and see them under that lens, and you begin to see the hyphae the in these organisms. So with the, ascomy the ascomycota, you don't have these, these bridges right here that divide, that clearly divide the, the cells. They tend to be straight, long hyphae that just go seemingly forever. In the ascomycota, you have uh, what they refer to as septate hyphae, which means you have these, these breaks in the hyphae. Uh, and the hyphae, if you don't know what this is, it's essentially the long, thin hairs uh, that, fun that grow out of a fungus. Uh, and, and these are usually you know, all over the forest floor or the soil, et cetera. Um, and they're very complex uh, systems. They're made out of, of chitin instead of cellulose. So these take different metabolites to break down the cell walls of this ascomycete fungus. Uh, let's see, they're haploid, but that's not really important to you. Uh, so the sexual spores are uh, usually the asco ascospores, uh, which is a product of, of meiosis, and then the asexual spores are conidiospores, which is a product of mitosis. So again, I spoke last time about sexual reproduction, asexual reproduction, the introduction of new DNA information, uh, uh, new uh, species, if you will, or subspecies or uh, varieties, which can oftentimes come over, uh, can, uh, I guess if you will outcompete the genetic resistance that you might get in certain varieties. Uh, so diseases caused by ascomycota. I want to get into now ascomycota's pathogens were the asco uh, the ascospore plays an important a prominent role as powdery mildew, apple scab, eastern filbert blight, and white mold. These are some of the just a few examples of, of these. And ascomycota, by the way, is the the group uh, where the majority of all uh, plant pathogen fungal pathogens are actually ascomycotas. Some are, are uh, omycete, some are basidiomycete, but the majority are ascomycota. Uh, so ascomycota has three different fruit, fruiting bodies, and the reason why this is important, because if you were to actually go out and get that microscope I encourage you to buy, you can begin to look at some of this stuff. And if you look at your primary inoculum on your powdery mildew, you should find a chasmothecium like this, where powdery mildew began. That would have been your primary inoculum. Finding a chasmothecium is going to tell you right away you're dealing with powdery mildew, not downy mildew. All right? And now with apple scab, remember we talked about that parathecium. You want to know whether you really have apple scab on your, on your apples or is it maybe a leaf spot or some other pathogen. Again, this is a cutaway view. You put this stuff under the microscope, you can start to see these organisms. Uh, now there's apothecium, it's another type of fruiting structure for ascomycetes, and this is usually associated with leaf spots or uh, not all these spots, but uh, maples in particular get this. So if you're in the ornamental business or the, or the or tree business, arborists uh, have to deal with this one the most. It's probably one of the most annoying pathogens for arborists because they leave these tar spots on your leaves, which uh, can be difficult to deal with. Diseases caused by ascomycota pathogens where the asexual spores play a prominent role. This group has the largest number of pathogen species relative to the... To the uh, other groups we will look at, uh, I think I talked about that here is powdery mildew on grapes. Um, 
Again, this is the ascomycota. Canidia spores is the actual reproductive cycle that causes this to spread severely throughout your, your uh, vineyard. Uh, this is the canidia spores, an actual picture there that you see. These spores are the ones that break loose and keep, and they just keep going and going and going. They look like a bunch of hot dogs on a string when you put them in a, in a or a bunch of sausages linked together when you put them in, under the microscope. Uh, again, this is a cutaway picture of the uh, powdery mildew. Here you have your mycelium. That's the actual uh, chasmothecium that landed on your leaf surface. Uh, this right here is your cuticles, and you have your epidermal cells, you have your mesosheath cells, and then et cetera, et cetera, you go to the bottom. So that pathogen lands on there, it starts producing these hyphes, and it produces ultimately conidiophores, which goes into your secondary uh, reproduction cycle, which just after that point it blows up, and you end up with powdery mildew all over the place. But if you find the powdery mildew at first, which I'll bring up another point that I have not yet discussed today, is the importance of scouting. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, scouting. I mean, if you're farming, you got to have somebody scouting, whether you're doing it yourself or you're paying somebody to do it. Um, we're fortunate enough that we're, I literally, I can see the University of Massachusetts from the farm. So I get the kids that are uh, studying uh, either plant pathology or uh, crop and soil science, plant sciences, horticultural, etc. Usually they've gone through courses and learned a couple of tricks. So I hire them and they'll just come in and work. You know, I'd say, hey, I'm very, very flexible. Whatever you know, hour or two you have in the week that you can come in and scout, look at all my crop, and try to find problems. And they find a lot of problems, and a lot of times they mislabel it. But you know what? I have had them get me, bail me out a couple of times simply because they told me that they found something that was an issue early on where I could deal with it. So if you were to actually find powdery mildew when it first comes up, you're going to find a chasmothecium. If you've been fighting powdery mildew for three or four months, you're not going to find a chasmothecium. You're going to find conidiophores, and you might think it's downy mildew, or you might think it might be another pathogen, maybe a leaf mold, etc. But it's very important that you, you practice scouting for both pests and diseases. Get somebody in there. Here's another chasmothecium. Again, this is a low-quality picture. Those are the fungal spores that are coming out of the side of it. And the inside opens up and sets out more spores. This is, um, oh, what is this? This is the disease cycle for powdery mildew. Um, I talked last time about the disease cycle for late blight, I believe, and I talked about the disease cycle for apple scab. We're looking at powdery mildew here. Our initial overwintering inoculum, again, is that chasmothecium. That chasmothecium is what's going to survive the winter and inoculate your crop in the spring and get this pathogen going again in your crop if you have it in there. So once it gets going, it liberates the ascospores, which land on the leaf surface, and it takes off. Uh, a lot of times, this chasmothecium is really on the surface of your leaf. And these things are really small, folks. I mean, you look at it and it looks big, but really, uh, if you go back to, if you're looking at this right here, you're probably looking at that at around 100 to 200 X, and you're not actually seeing the spores. The spores are inside of the canidia. So you gotta really go down to about uh, 400 X on a microscope. Okay, so we got the disease cycle here. It starts producing. You get infection on roses if you're, if, you got infections there. So again, the powdery mildew, like most other funguses, are looking for simple sugars. They're looking for a way to survive, like everybody else. They want, they want to eat, they want to reproduce, they want to get old, and they want to die. That's what pretty much, in a nutshell, is what everybody does, on, every living organism on this planet does. Uh, so for them, things like leaf petals are hot spots where you can get it sometimes. The leaf itself, um, some of the fruit sometimes. Uh, 
can be a, a good place for these guys. And then they start to come back here. And uh, let's see, they go from the leaf petals to the mycelium. It forms a chasmothecium. It goes to the leaf again. And then you have your overwintering cycle. But during, before you have your overwintering cycle, you have your primary cycle. And this is the one that goes over and over and over again. Uh, and it can be within one season. But usually the one that you see mostly wiping out and affecting your crop is the asexual secondary cycle, like I mentioned on the other, other ones. And I'll keep mentioning that over and over again because that's the one you need to try to interrupt. Um, here's apple scab. You see all the scabs on the actual apple. We saw the video, if you were here this morning, this is, is a polycyclic disease. The primary inoculum is the ascospores, which usually tends to land on the leaf. It doesn't land on the apple. The apple is it usually has uh, apple scab because the spores have been released from the leaf during the secondary asexual reproductive cycle and then it puts those spores onto your apples which then contaminate your apples and give you these really ugly apples here. Of course the secondary inoculum is referred to as a conidia and it is a facultative saprophyte. Does anybody remember what that is? Facultative saprophyte. That means it prefers to live in the world of the dead but if it has to it'll go on to living tissues. So if you're dealing with a facultative sapro saprophyte, uh, then you know that nutrition is probably really an issue, uh, or something is wrong with your, fer uh, with your fertilization regimen. You're, you're not doing something right, and it could be a lot of different things. So here it is on the leaf. This is apple leaves, and you see your spores here. Again, remember I talked to you guys about is it biotic or is it abiotic? In this particular example, you see this is a biotic pathogen, and what do you have is really just this blotchiness kind of all over the place. You have limitations in the size of the actual growth. So if maybe if I would have burned this with some sort of herbicide or uh, pesticide or some other chemical, had this been burned, it would have been probably a whole huge portion of the leaf and not just part of the leaf. So he's asking about metabolic pathways of the fungus, whether it's on living tissue or dead tissue. The answer is yes, because when you're dead tissues, the cells are already broken down. It has no way to defend itself. When you're alive, you, the fungus has to release something to actually attack or overcome the plant or the host system of defenses. So in this example, again, we see that you have multiple blotch spots here. There's limitations to how big those scabs can get. And the reason why is because after it attacks, um, it'll hit the first cell. It'll begin to signal we have a problem. It'll start sending signals to other cells. Ultimately, it limits how far that fungus can grow. It can only go a certain point and no more. Not all pathogens are this way and not all hosts are that way. But for the most part, that's how you end up with most of your ascomycete funguses. I don't want to break in too much more than that because it's going to get real complicated. <laughs> I'm going to say a lot of scientific terms that most people probably, uh, well, we'd have to discuss it real thoroughly. I'll just try to cover it superficially. Uh, so here we're looking again at scab lesions with canidia. So this is apple scab. You see right here, this is the actual host epidermal cells right there. And then you have the, the canidia fours here, and then you have your actual uh, mesosheath cells, the cells beneath the epidermal cells. And this is the actual fungus right in between it. This comes in and makes himself right at home. Uh, here's uh, during the winter, the parathesium mature in the leaf litter. And these little black spots that you see here are parathesiums, every single one of them on a dead leaf. So that's what's sitting on the ground. When I talked to you guys earlier about removing those dead leaves, if, you're heavy, if you have a heavy infestation, you know, this is just part of a leaf. And every single one of these black spots is a uh, parathesium. 
that's going to release spores. That's a lot of spores going into the environment. And you realize when you get, start talking about funguses and bacteria, et cetera, there is so much inoculum around us that we cannot just come in with this idea of, um, uh, you know, we're, we're going to just knock it all down and kill it, uh, you know, use sanitation somehow or some heavy, harsh chemicals to come inside and just kill everything because uh, I'll talk about it a little later, but these type of effects, I mean, they have gone in and, and they have just eliminated, on some pathogens, they'll eliminate 80% of the inoculum, kill 80% of the spores, and all it did was buy them about eight days because they produce so quickly. I mean, it, they, they reproduce very, very quickly. Here's some leaf litter. I mean, this is a real thick leaf litter in this orchard. Uh, really, if you're fighting apple scab and you have really serious infection, it's not a good idea to leave this kind of leaf litter in the orchard. You want to get that out of there. Uh, here is another cutaway picture of a parathesium. You see the actual epidermal cells and mesosheath cells. Uh, and then you have, no, I'm sorry, this is the epidermal cells over here. These are the mesosheath cells. And then, of course, this is the parathesium. And these are the actual fungal spores right in the center. This is what's going to blow up and come out, as we saw in the video. Here's uh, your ascospores in here, uh, and the ascii, which the ascii is actually these tubes, and the ascospore is what's inside those tubes. So you're talking about just, I mean, just an innumerable amount of spores. <laughs> it's just like to try to count the number is, forget it. It's just like God said to Abraham, you know, count, can you count the stars? Can you number the stars? It's like, no, Lord. Can you number the inoculum? <laughs> no, Lord. <laughs> it's impossible. So the idea of trying to just eliminate all the inoculum is, it, it, it's, a, it's a futile effort. I mean, you're not going to succeed there. Again, I showed this earlier. This is the uh, life cycle of uh, apple scab. And, you know, your goal as a grower is to, one, strengthen the host as much as possible, and then two, interrupt these life cycles as, as best you can with whatever tactics we have. In this case, the leaf litter is very important, but um, if you are in a desert or a dry region, an arid region, and you're irrigating, how does the spore wake up with water? So it might be wise for you in an arid region to tra perhaps transition to drip tape or some sort of controlled release uh, irrigation system and not just come in with broad uh, uh, sprinklers or to uh, use heavy flood irrigation, which, is, which was practiced some years ago. They don't do that so much anymore, but they, they used to do quite heavy flood irrigation. And of course, that's going to wake up all that, uh, all that inoculum on the floor. Um, here's an ascospore. I mean, this is a little petri dish. It's maybe four inches around, and you just tap it, and you see all that mess. Those are all spores, and they just go airborne. And it, it's not like you know you need to have hurricane winds. I mean, just a gentle breeze will spread these things all over the orchard. It, it doesn't take a lot, folks. Um, I think I discussed this earlier. The diagram of ascomycota blight infection process and in chickpeas. Uh, I talked about the fungal spore here. It, it, it looks for, uh, uh, wants to form the apricerium, which is a hostorium, et cetera. Ultimately, it produces the, the uh, parathesium and it releases new spores. Uh, so here's white mold. I'll switch over to white mold. This is another ascospore. 
only from uh, Apothecium. It also is a facultative saprophyte, as most of the other ones. It prefers to live in the world of the dead. It looks for ways to kill your plant, and then it consumes it. Uh, it cannot survive alone on healthy tissues. Uh, so, and this guy, he's got like 400 plus hosts. I mean, it, it, can, it can hit all kinds of different crops. Um, so here what you see are the, uh, sap, uh, let's see, the apothecium, I think is what the white powder is on it. And then of course this is the stem here of the, uh, I, be I believe what we're looking at is beans here. Um, yeah, it looks like a green bean there. Yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. It's a green bean, I'm sorry. That's a green bean there that's totally wiped out. You can't hardly even tell it's a green bean. This is tar spot of maple, ascospores only. Uh, again, you see that, that you know, this is actually not an apothecium. This is a, uh, uh, I forget the name of this. Parathe no, I forget the name. I'm sorry. I'll go back and there you go. Apothecium. I was right. Okay. And these type of pathogens leave these spots on your leaves that are very un, uh, undesirable if you are working in a let's say a different resort or uh, golf courses, et cetera, and you have trees out there and they don't usually like it when the trees have these ugly spots on the leaves. But that's for those folks. Um, other names for this group for the Ascomycota are uh, fungi imperfecti, like I said earlier today. These things have been given so many different names and when you get into some of the old literature, you find these names, these old names like fungi imperfecti or uh, deuteromycetes, and these are old names for ascomycota. It's all the same thing. Uh, artificial toxins, uh, let's see. Okay, that's not too important. So now we're looking at pycnidia here. It's uh, similar to parathecium, but the canidia in, uh, instead of uh, asci. And you have uh, canidia life cycle, again, goes from the germination onto the leaf, back to forming spores. I mean, it's very similar life cycle, most of these. Uh, again, here's the parathecium. Uh, the acervulus, uh, fl flat disc-shaped fruiting body embedded in plant tissue, which also releases more spores. And uh, of course, this is actually uh, oftentimes the cause of anthracnose, which is a whole other fungal disease that typically goes after the fruit or the bean or whatever the actual edible portion of the plant is, some sort of fruit or bean, and they leave uh, these black spots all over it. Maybe some of you guys are familiar with. Uh, uh, this is uh, septoria, which is another leaf spot. Uh, there's different pathogens that, uh, this is a tomato leaf right here, and there's actually quite a number of different pathogens that'll cause this, but in this particular one, we're looking at septoria, and you see the same thing, pycnidia. Here's uh, some, uh, uh, I think that's wheat, and same thing, it's just these ugly spots that are left all over the plant, and these are actually ne necrotrophic, so again, they gotta kill it before they can consume it. Uh, here's the anthracnose of beans, you see those black spots there, Anthracnose of turf, you know, this is a little bit different because this is actually hitting the crown. It knocks the turf back. Um, let's see, we got dogwood with anthracnose. You see the leaves dying here. Totally wipes out the leaves. Uh, let's see, uh, there's a third type, the canidia on canidia fours. Uh, in this group of, you have a number of different diseases associated with the canidia and the canidia fours, and some of those actually include uh, vascular wilts, uh, root and crown rots, and leaf spots. Most, all of these are actually above the crown. They're not associated with the actual root system itself. So you tend to see this above the surface of the soil. Here's Alternaria again. Uh, here's an, uh, this is early blight, which you see this spots right here. It actually looks like it could be uh, anthracnose, but it's really early blight. 
Both of those are actually uh, ascomycete funguses, but they're different funguses. And you may be able to find some that are resistant to it, but really at the end of the day, like I've said before, you get your nutrition right, you don't have to fight this so much. You won't have to figure out which one this is. But you, normally with early blight, you have more of a, a larger pattern that'll actually totally wipe out your crop and it really gets ugly. And thracanose doesn't usually get this ugly unless it's very, very severe, while early blight normally gets this, this ugly. It's, it's normal for that. But the issues is, like I, I mentioned earlier today, is how do you figure out you know, what disease you're dealing with? How do you know whether you're dealing with anthracanose or you're dealing with late blight or you're dealing with early blight or leaf spot or some other disease? You, know, you, you gotta identify your, 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 your disease. If you don't identify it, then you're not exactly sure what to use. And this is just a real generic uh, description on how to handle the pathogen. So we'll just say, for example, you, you think that you have late blight. Therefore, you think, ah, I think I need to rip out my crop because there's no hope, right? You're losing hope before anything else. Well, I would tell you to always try to assume that that's gonna be towards the end. Uh, don't, don't jump the gun on ripping your crop out or plowing it down. Look at other things and make, eliminate other things so you're not jumping the gun to rip that out. But I just wanna go through here and, and, and share what this recommends you should do as a grower to deal with this disease. All right, we'll start with early blight. The responsible fungus is Alternaria solani. And uh, the description, one or two spots per leaf, et cetera. The damage uh, is, uh, let's see, uh, description of foliar damage is one or two spots per leaf, approximately a quarter to half inch in diameter. So first off, late blight is what type of a fungus? Omycete fungus, which is also known as what? Water mold, okay? Septoria and Alternaria are actually ascomycete, which are more of a humid environment. So first off, you need to think about as a farmer, what environments am I dealing with? What am I putting my plant underneath? If it's a wet year, maybe it's late blight. If it's a dry year, or you're out in the desert somewhere and you don't use overhead irrigation, then it's highly unlikely that it's gonna be late blight. Uh, so we'll go back over here. It tells us what the spot is when we look at late blight. So spots start out uh, pale green, usually near the edges of the tips of foliage and turn brown to purplish black. In humid conditions, a fuzzy mold appears on the underside of the leaves. And um, also, this guy reproduces very quickly. So you find it today, by next week, the whole plant should be dead. If, if it advances in those conditions. However, with early blight, it takes sometimes a couple of months to knock it down. With leaf spot, it never really knocks it down. It just makes it ugly. So those are some differences to take into consideration. Okay, so it says description of the fruit damage. It talks about the fruiting structures, et cetera. If we go further down, we look at description of stem damage. So we start looking at the stems. This is another telltale sign of what you have is looking at your stems. So you have dark sunken cankers at or above the soil line, might be early blight. Black or brown spots appear of spread entire veins. I mean, usually with late blight, it's the whole stinking plant. There isn't hardly anything left. Leaf spot. Nothing. So if you've got nothing on the stem, then it's probably leaf blight. It's most likely not going to be one of the other two. Now let's look at the organic treatment. Everybody wants to grow organic. What are the recommendations for organic management of these pathogens? So for early blight, it says remove the lower leaves at first, uh, at first fruit sets, remove affected leaves as they appear, plant tomatoes in a different area next year, etc. Uh, you know, so that kind of tells you right away that this guy is a slow mover. 
So if you just go in and you delete, you're probably going to get ahead of the game. You look at late blight, pull and destroy the plant. <laughs> I mean, it's like, this is what I mean. It's, this is what they're recommending you to do. Pull your plant out. This is why it's so important that you figure out what it is. Don't just jump the gun and pull the plant out and throw it away. So, leaf spot again, remove infected foliage as it appears, clean tools before moving, etc. Sanitation and, and deleafing. Sanitation and deleafing. Late blight, rip it out. And the thing is that a lot of folks will come to me and they'll say, I think I have this and I think I have that. And the thing is, if you don't really know what it is, you might, you might say, oh, I got late blight. Go read it. What, what do I do with late blight? Pull it out. That's, that's not really the best way to deal with it. However, what if you did have late blight and you're thinking you have leaf spot or early blight? Most likely you would think it would have, I would think that you would probably, if you were to make a mistake, you would think it's early blight. Well, if you decide to do nothing about it, you could potentially lose your whole crop. So, you know, there's two extremes here. One, you're too quick on the gun and you rip everything out. Or two, you don't do anything and you lose your whole crop and maybe even your neighbor's crop if you happen to have a neighbor farming next to you. So, again, it's very important to appropriately uh, identify what the pathogen is. Botrytis. How many of you are familiar with gray mold botrytis? Or gray mold also known as botrytis. That is one that can be a tougher, tough guy. Um, it's a very simple fungus. Only likes to live in the world of the dead. It only likes to eat dead tissues. It likes to start. It can only start by dead tissues. So if, you ha if you're fighting botrytis, as I fought it once, uh, how did that happen? If it only likes to eat dead tissues. Well, here's a fine example right here. I got guys, I, have, I ask them to go out and de-leaf, and they leave a whole portion of a leaf there that they didn't remove that was damaged. Died, it's now necrotic. This is a necrotic fungus, or facultative saprophyte, which means it starts on the dead tissues. Once it establishes itself, it says, okay, well, you know, we ran out of food. What do we do now? Let's start killing the neighboring cells. Uh, okay, nobody notices until you walk by. Oh, did I put that picture there? Yep, there it is. You walk by and you find the whole plant dead. And you say, what happened? What is this? A secondary symptom. What is this? A primary symptom. What got my attention, what usually gets everybody's attention, my tomatoes died. What happened? It was botrytis. A very, very simple, very easily preventable pathogen. It attacks the berry on, uh, on strawberries because strawberry, when it ripens up, are simple sugars. And it goes to town on the simple sugars. So when you buy strawberries and you put them in your refrigerator and then you notice they go gray, the inoculum was already there. The problem is, is that now that it's ripened completely and those sugars are readily available, it's now readily available to the fungal pathogen, it notices, hey, it was in a quiescent state, remember? Now it notices I have the right environment, wakes up and starts to consume the edible food. In this particular case, I had dead plant tissue from uh, you know, removal of the leaf that wasn't appropriately done. Uh, in other words, this is poor plant maintenance. One of the guys moved too quick, what have you, left the portion there, botrytis came in, it started to dine on it, on the dead portion of that plant. Once it ran out of dead plant tissues, it starts releasing toxins to kill the rest. And eventually, it'll choke out the whole stem and kill the plant. 
The thing is, uh, you don't notice it until the rest of the plant is dead. So you mentioned strawberries, there's the strawberries. But you notice that it starts on the strawberries, and if you don't remove those strawberries in the event that you're in a production system where you're pushing strawberries uh, uh, for a long period of time, that strawberry there, that botrytis can start crumbing this way and go right into the crown. So botrytis, something as simple as botrytis can wipe out your strawberries. Very, very easy. Uh, right here we have uh, beans, so again that's botrytis, you know, the, this portion of the bean ripens up. If you don't take that off of the stock, you leave it there. If you don't harvest out beans, you normally you only grow them, you know, 120 days or whatever and you rip it out, so most people don't particularly care, but if you wanted to leave it there, it will ultimately take out the plant. Uh, the neck rot of onion, again, that's botrytis, gray mold, very, very simple pathogen. And um, this is probably oftentimes due to um, the way that they actually grow onions. A lot of people think onions need to be grown in super acid soils, very little calcium. Anyhow, yeah, you can get away with it, but you set yourself up for failure in some of these departments if you want to do that. Uh, here's Botrytis canidiospore. So again, you're thinking, well, is this Botrytis or could this be something else? Uh, sometimes Botrytis doesn't look like the pictures I had. It's more of a gray mold. But if you want to put it underneath there, you'll find the spores here. You see the ascomycete hyphae here that go to form these spores, the canidiospores. And when you look at those spores, you, um, I mean, you'll know right away it's Botrytis. Of course, with Botrytis, it's predominantly, uh, it's very, very rare to have uh, a teleomorph, which is the, the spore that's produced through sexual reproduction. In other words, Botrytis hardly ever, uh, ever reproduces sexually, so it's almost always the same exact genes, which means that you don't usually have to worry about Botrytis overcoming genetic resistance. It's, it's the same Botrytis we've been fighting for 100 years or whatever. It hasn't changed very, very little. It's the same pathogen. Um, talked about that. So here's another one. Okay, so you have that wilting there. That's your secondary symptom. But what if you didn't find botrytis? What if you found this? What's that? Fusarium wilt. You see how you have the same primary symptom, different secondary symptoms, totally different pathogens. But they're both ascomycete funguses. So this is fusarium wilt. And this is what happened. Again, this didn't happen to me until my calcium levels tanked. Before that, I had no problem with fusarium. You get the calcium up, the problem goes away. Uh, also, this is very host-specific, and you can't see it right here. See, right, there, right through there. That's the grafting point. It attacked both the genetically resistant, and it attacked the non-genetically resistant. So something else I'll point out is you can have pathogens that'll start here on, on the uh, Zion, and even though your rootstock is genetically resistant to fusarium, it has the genetics to resist that pathogen. If that pathogen starts in the zion where you do not have that genetic resistance, it can begin to attack the genetically resistant portion of the plant, rendering your rootstock really useless. So it's important to not bury this or what, whatever you have into the soil or zions, into the soil where it might become susceptible to soil pathogens. It's just FYI. Um, verticillium wilt, it could have been verticillium wilt, but, um, you know, I, I, I was really confused on this one because I, I, I didn't want to <laughs> give it up. I thought, well, it can't be fusarium, it has to be something else. So I ripped the whole thing out, I, I looked at it under a microscope, I saw a number of different uh, uh, detritivores inside of there eating the dead plant tissues, uh, doing what the Lord created them to do, 
but I, I still couldn't quite pin it down, so I had, I had to get that certainty, so I took it into the lab. Um, I knew it wasn't bacterial wilt because I couldn't find the bacteria inside the, or, inside the vascular system. I thought it's fusarium wilt or verticillium wilt, but verticillium wilt is very different in that verticillium wilt hits the stock somewhere above the soil while fusarium is actually soil-based. So there's two different ways a pathogen hits it. So I had to give it up and it was fusarium. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you just as farmers, we just don't want to admit, you know, like parents, we don't want to admit our faults, or, you know, as husband or wife, we don't want to admit our faults. As farmers, sometimes we don't want to admit where we go wrong, but I went wrong. Um, so anyhow, here's the canidia spores uh, with masses of canidia and teleomorphs has not been observed. Again, with verticillium, a teleomorph, that means a sexual reproduction, new DNA, new varieties. Um, they're very rare. So this guy doesn't change much. So it's not usually something you really need to be scared about. Uh, you, can, you should be able to overcome it for the most part. Uh, and of course, verticillium wilt is different with its, with its uh, secondary symptoms because like fusarium attacks typically the crown of the whole root system, knocking the whole thing and just taking the whole plant out. Uh, verticillium could, uh, attacks the vascular system alone and may only take a certain branch out or a certain portion of the leaf. It doesn't hit the whole thing. Um, here's some more verticillium. You see it right there where it hit the stem. Vascular browning, a unilateral wilt. Again, if you see this vascular browning, even if it's on the main part of the stem and it knocks the whole plant out, if it's very far and removed from the soil, then it's probably not fusarium because fusarium is almost strictly soil-based. And of course, there are some spores of the verticillium dahlia. I think I made it through Ascomycota there. And timeline of infection. You notice you have late blight or any fungus on your crop, you're already over here somewhere. You're way over there, way to the right. Those fungicides are only effective, remember I said here and to the left, which means before it established itself. So when you come in with a fungicide, especially with late blight, it's pointless. You're throwing money away. You're not gonna save the crop. It's like doing CPR on somebody who's been dead for 100 years, you know? It, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's way down the line. It's over, game over. So most of those are <clears throat> contact fungicides. In other words, you need to put it on the surface of a root or the leaf or whatever, and that'll keep the spore from, from germinating, so that eliminates the germination. If it doesn't affect it through a contact, if it say maybe it's uh, somehow it, germ it, it confuses the germ tube so it, it never really finds the place, then you know it affects the germ tube. Or maybe perhaps it affects apressorium formation, but whatever it is, it's gonna be from here that way. Only a slight few fungicides can actually kill a fungus, and none of those are approved for organic use, and all of them are extremely toxic. You do not wanna put it in your body. So if you're gonna do it organic, it doesn't exist. In the organic world, there is no such thing as a fungicide, meaning that it actually kills. You know, the ide means it kills. There is no ide for fungicide in organic. Everything is a preventative. Yes, that's why they tell you, you know, spray baby spray. Get all this stuff and spray. They come and they want to sell you all these sprays. But like I talked this morning, prevention, the best prevention is not through sprays. That's kind of like saying the best prevention is through vaccination. The best prevention is through Nutrition, developing the plant and giving the plant the ability to have a strong immune system and fight off these pathogens. And of course, proper moisture and environmental management. Double nickel, again, is, is, is a contact. Um, 
Double nickel is on this. Uh, I forget, biological. No. I forget. Anyway, I forget the active ingredient in double nickel. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, if you do uh, searches on the, that, it is a contact-based uh, fungicide. Um, it can work in the root system as a drench as well as a spray. But again, it needs to be there before the inoculum gets there. And remember what I told you. That there's so much inoculum out there. Anyway, I've used these products before. And I find that they're only marginally effective. The only thing that I have found that is, can really, really keep them out is proper nutrition. You can use these products, but they're all mostly marginally effective. The question is, you know what hydrogen peroxide can do to fungal spores? Well, hydrogen peroxide and sanidate, which is a product that is commonly used, which is a, a peroxide with a peracetic acid mix, very strongly concentrated, that is used for uh, sanitizing, you know, taking that, 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 that approach of coming in and let's just clean everything and kill everything. Um, this is such a serious protectant when you bring in these peroxides. For most of those, they won't do anything. All they're going to do is kill the actual spore. So let's go, for example, to this. What do we have here? Apple scab. So in apple scab, we have the ascospore. Um, and the ascospore is inside the ascus, and the ascus is inside the parathesium. So you realize if you're going to go out and spray, for example, sanidate, uh, tell you go, I don't know, you get a wild idea, you're going to go outside and you're going to spray all your leaves with sanity. You want to you, you want to kill it all with this peroxide peracetic acid mix. Well, first of all, that stuff has to break through the parathesium, right? And then break through the ascospore to finally get to the ascos, I'm sorry, the ascus, to finally get to the ascospore. In other words, it has three levels of penetration it has to go through before it has any chance of killing that spore. So it's probably not going to work. The question is about using products like sodium bicarbonate or uh, what was the other one? Charcoal. The charcoal powder, etc., to try to uh, knock down some of these spores. Uh, the answer is really no. A charcoal powder is pretty much like um, biochar, which is really nothing more than like humus. It's really useless in that department. It's good for pulling perhaps heavy metals and other things, but definitely not for spores. It's not going to really hold on to a spore. A spore is actually too big by the time you get into the the, the uh, uh, charcoal and, and uh, humus, etc. Because at that point, you're really dealing with some really small stuff. The other product you said, sodium bicarbonate. They don't use that as much as they use potassium salts of fatty acids to try to talk, knock funguses down. And that usually only works, and it's only marginally effective. But when it does work, it usually only works on very simple funguses with uh, very weak walls, cell walls that will actually throw a mineral imbalance into the into the uh, fungus by throwing too much excessive potassium in it, that'll cause it to shut the system down. But a lot of times it doesn't even kill them. All it does is slow them down. So all it does is buy you a little bit of time. Um, but the problem with using those types of products is when you use them as a foliar spray, if you are, uh, they tend to burn the crop because most people tend to run high potassium. Uh, and if you're running a high level of potassium in the soil and you use potassium salts of fatty acids like uh, Millstop, I believe is the name of the product, if you spray that on there, you're going to shoot the potassium up in your crop, and you could potentially get potassium burn in that crop. So you can't use it liberally. You have to be very you know, restricted, unless you know that you have a potassium deficiency. So when you, and then if you were to use a sodium product, you would have the same issue. You, you end up getting salt burn on the crop, because you're dumping too much salt, and you're throwing chemical imbalances on the plant. It's not, it's not really, in other words, you, you create more problems than you solve. It's not really a good approach. But, you know, people have used it. It is marginally effective. They like to sell you these products. You just got to know what they can do and what they can't do. And for the most part, 
like I said, if you're already to the point where you're looking at a crop that's hit hard by a fungal pathogen, um, like we talked about any one of these three, well, if it's late blight, forget it. Um, if it's leaf spot, honestly, I get leaf spot occasionally, and I don't do anything. I just keep deleafing. And it's, it's just, it's not that big of a deal. It's just an ugly spot on the leaf. But if for some reason it gets really, really bad, you have re serious problems somewhere else. And usually it's your, your, your chemistry is not right in the soil. If it's bad enough to where you're worried about it. Uh, with early blight, you can usually get away with it. You can usually control the humidity again. With late blight, there's, not, there's no spray to control late blight in any production system. They, they have sprays to try to prevent the establishment of late blight, but once it takes off, there's nothing to spray. The game's over. Product there, methyl bromide, is what puts strawberries number one on the dirty dozen list. Um, that is a very, very seriously toxic uh, chemical that you really don't want to use. Yeah, so the statement is that when you start using a lot of these products, you kill beneficials, especially when you dump them into the, uh, into the, as a drench and you dump them into the root system. And uh, methyl bromide, it, you know, strawberries are typically grown on the ground. Um, they're only just now starting to grow them in greenhouses, but uh, when they go out and they spray methyl bromide in the ground, uh, they cause, they wreak havoc on that ground. Um, and they're having serious problems. And I know Driscoli's, uh, they pretty much have the monopoly in Watsonville and Salinas for strawberries. And... Uh, I know that their production systems, are, they're starting to look elsewhere. Okay, so the question is, how long does it take to correct the nutritional problem so you can grow that crop again? Well, first, it depends on how bad it is, and second, it depends on the crop. So, for example, if you're dealing with a short season crop, then really, you're not gonna. It, the season's gonna be over before you correct it. You can come in, you can make additions, and you can try to get it right, but the best thing to do is to, once you're gonna start all over again, you know, take your soil sample, make the changes, apply it, fill it all down, mix it all in, and start over and have a better, you know, better luck next time. That would be my approach. Uh, maybe if I think like certain things like potassium, you could put in the ground, they'll react pretty quick if you happen to have a deficiency in potassium. Magnesium, you can turn to Epsom salt, you can get it in the ground and get your magnesium up. Calcium usually takes a considerably long time if you're going to lime it to get that calcium up. So, you know, you're talking over a month before you can really see a serious change in that calcium unless you're going to come in and use a... Uh, a, a synthetic form of calcium, like calcium nitrate or calcium chloride, uh, then you can get the calcium up pretty quick, but um, it, it really depends on the crop and the nutritional deficiency, or nutritional imbalance. Okay, the question is, is gypsum any faster than lime? Well, it depends on what type of lime, but there's really only three types of calciums. It's calcitic lime, dolmitic lime, and then there's uh, uh, gypsum which uh, gypsum is calcium sulfate, of course. Uh, dolmitic lime is calcium carbonate and magnesium carbonate. And then calcitic lime is just calcium carbonate. All of those take quite a, they, they take a, a good minute. And it really depends on your production system for how long it's going to take. And it also depends on how finely, uh, um, when they mine them, whether or not they crush them down and how fine that, that is actually crushed. So if you're using more of an agricultural lime, which is more pelletized lime, that could take months to break down. If you're using like a micronized limestone, that could probably break down in, in a few weeks. And, and depending on your system, maybe if you're very acid, it could probably break down in a matter of a few weeks. Um, but it, it, it's not going to be right away. So his statement is that he wouldn't recommend using gypsum unless you have a minimum amount of calcium, which again goes back to what I said. It depends on your imbalances. And I believe that that's largely driven by the fact that the sulfate and the calcium is and oftentimes in acidic soils or low 
calcium soils is too high for there to ever actually, for it to, in other words, it's more likely to precipitate calcium than to actually release calcium. So, which means that it's going to lock up calcium instead of making it available to the plant. I'm sorry. So the question is, you go out scouting and you have powdery mildew and you find it on tomatoes. Depends on how severe it is. Now, if you find it early enough, it won't be severe. So my first response would be a deleafing, and then I would go look at my nutrition numbers and see what's going on. Second would also be to go look at, or third even, look at my, my irrigation system and make sure that I'm actually irrigating properly, that the crop is not drought stressed or waterlogged. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.